If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So there are various reports that, particularly at festivities, Henry appears and he's dressed as an Ottoman sultan. He's presumably wearing possibly in a turban, but he's certainly wearing that Ottoman style, the, the grand sort of kaftan, lots of velvet, lots of silk. That was Jerry Broughton talking about the impact of the Islamic world on Tudor England. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of March 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week we're talking to the historian Jerry Broughton. Jerry is Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary, University of London, and a regular contributor to BBC History magazine. This month is a busy time for Jerry with the publication of his new book on Islam and the Tudors and the airing of his radio documentary on Venice's Jewish ghetto. We sent our digital editor, Emma Mason, to speak to Jerry about these two fascinating projects. And they spent the first half of the interview discussing Jerry's new book, which is entitled This Orient Isle. Your new book explores how Elizabeth I, after being excommunicated by the Pope in 1570 and therefore cut off from much of Catholic Europe, established a relationship with the Islamic world. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's one of the, I think, unknown stories about the period. So we often think of Elizabeth as being very defined by, obviously, England and that it's very inward-looking. It's an agrarian society. There don't seem to be that many uh, encounters beyond the shores of this blessed isle, this you know, teeming womb of royal kings, as Richard II talks about. But actually, um, what I've done with uh, this historical aspect of the story is say, that's not the case. There are many, many uh, encounters that uh, Elizabethan England has 
beyond these shores. And that one of the most significant is with what I'm calling the Islamic world. But what's interesting about that is it's about the fact that Elizabeth has various alliances, treaties, uh, memorandums of, of, of cordial understanding with many Muslim empires. So we're talking about the Moroccan empire, the Saudian dynasty in Northwest Africa. We're talking about the Ottoman Empire, obviously based in modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople, as it was then, um, but also the Persian Empire, the Shia uh, Safavid Persian Empire. And throughout her reign, really from the late 1550s right through to her death in 1603, there are extensive accounts of diplomatic alliances with these empires, with merchants traveling to these places, with travelers uh, operating throughout these, these places. And that what's interesting and one of the, the, the key elements of the story is to say Islam and English Protestantism sort of came together in this odd moment where, of course, their common enemy was Catholicism, particularly Spain, the Spain of Philip II um, and the papacy. And that reformed Protestant Christian belief looked at particularly Sunni Islamic belief and said, we're actually not that different. Now, of course they are, um, but I think for the current climate that we're in, it's very, very important to tell a story of when England was actually working quite closely with the Islamic world. Um, and that begins to tell us a different historical story about, about this island. That We shouldn't always just think of it as being about a Christian English story. It's about different encounters. And one of them is about Elizabeth's encounter with the Islamic world. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about what the Islamic world was like in the 16th century. Who were the major powers? What was the culture like? We often forget that Islam was one of the great imperial, but also cultural powers in this period. Um, the Ottoman Empire was probably the largest empire in the world in the mid-16th century. So Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, who rules from 1520 to 1566, is the great emperor. Um, by this stage, the Ottomans are at the gates of Vienna, all the way to virtually India. They control that whole sway of the territory, most of North Africa. Their great adversary is uh, Philip II, um, the Spanish emperor. But... Everybody acknowledges that the Ottomans are the great power. Alongside that, of course, there's the Persian uh, Safavid Empire, based in modern-day Iran, again with a, a bunch of Shia Shahs, people who believe in the, the Shia version of, of Islam, and the Ottomans and the Persians are constantly at war. But the English are working with both of them. Then, of course, you also have the Saudian dynasty, which is based in North Africa, in what we now call Morocco, which is of Arab descent. And their ruler, Al-Mansur, um, Al-Mansur is a figure who writes letters to and fro to Elizabeth. They're exchanging cordial correspondence. Elizabeth is always right, also writing to the Ottoman uh, emperors throughout the late 16th century, particularly the Sultan Murad, and rather wonderfully, his mother, the Sultana. She exchanges letters very openly with her and says, we understand that you are one of the great world powers, but we want to trade with you. We want to have a political and military alliance with you. And I'm sending you a carriage or I'm sending you uh, an organ or I'm sending you some nice clothes. And the Sultana says, thank you very much. And she writes back and she says, I'm sending you some nice perfume and some nice silk. So there's an absolute open exchange I and mean, it's all done through translation. But there's an understanding that the Elizabethans get that the great world powers are the Ottomans and the Persians and that they want to work with them because they also see themselves as not being big players on that world stage. The Elizabethans at this point are almost, I, I often compare them to Romania under the Eastern Bloc. We are 
absolutely on the edge of the world. We're not at the centre of it. You know, the Reformation has meant that England's been effectively locked out of Europe. So one response to that is to say, well, therefore, let's make some common alliance with the even bigger imperial power players of this period, which are the Ottoman sultans, the Persian shahs, um, and the kings and rulers of Morocco. So to what extent was it about Catholicism being the common enemy? Was it, you mentioned this power. How is it split? To some extent, I think it is, it's a problem about Catholicism because England needs to find allies to survive in a world which, is, uh, which looks pretty, pretty bleak. England is a small Protestant island on the edge of Europe. Um, Philip II is bearing down on them. The, the constant threat, really, from, from the point of excommunication onwards in 1558, Elizabeth is facing the fear of invasion. Of course, there is the Armada in 1588. It doesn't succeed. There are several other Armadas that are sent. People often forget about these. Again, for various reasons, they, they don't succeed. They're, they're wrecked through storms or ineptitude. It goes wrong. But there is constantly this sense in which Catholicism for Protestantism is the problem. So what you get is what I call a conflation, a conflation between Protestantism and Islam, that there's a sense in which if you can work with the Ottoman powers, you can, you can diffuse that Catholic aggression. So in the 1580s, the English ambassadors who are living in Istanbul, working very closely with the Ottomans, uh, are saying, can you engage the Spanish fleet in the Mediterranean because we know that it's going to come after us shortly. And again, they know that the great power, the only power really that can take on the Spanish is the Ottomans. So there is a way in which this is uh, working on the basis that, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. However, I do think that the consequences of all these connections for Elizabethan England with the Islamic world, um, there are unintended consequences which lead to these understandings. So you have Elizabethan writers talking about the distinction between Sunni and Shia belief in this period. I think that's extraordinary. I think most people today wouldn't be able to, in England, uh, talk about that distinction. Um, whereas the Elizabethans are doing that quite openly. They are saying, could we make a strategic alliance that could draw us closer together with this culture as both a political and military empire, but also a theology that perhaps we could accommodate and perhaps they could accommodate us. So I think it, initially it's, it's developed as an alliance because it's, it's to try and uh, push back the power of Catholicism. But as I say, it has all these unintended consequences. And one, of course, is that you get what we would today call Muslims, but the period would call Saracens or Moors or Mohammedans, who appear on the English stage. There are just dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Throughout the 1590s, it becomes an absolute craze to put what we would call Muslims on the English stage. So there are many, many you know, different cultural, intellectual, commercial consequences to this political alliance, which is driven by this fear of Catholicism. You mentioned there dramatists, playwrights, obviously I would have to ask about Shakespeare. I'm really fascinated to, to read about that. Maybe you could tell us a bit more. Whenever I say I'm working on a book which is about Shakespeare and Islam, people poo-poo it and say, but there are no Muslims in Shakespeare. Well, then I say, well, there's Othello. And they say, well, yes, but he's, uh, he's a black African, isn't he? And I say, well, he's a Moor. But then he says he's a Moor, but he doesn't describe really exactly what he is. And actually, he'd probably be a Berber, and he may have been born into the Muslim world. And people say, like, mm, OK, yeah, that's, that's an issue. And then I say, and then there's the Merchant of Venice, where there's a Prince of Morocco who's a suitor to, to Portia. 
he is also somebody who presumably is Muslim, even though he comes from North Africa. Ah. And then I say, and then the Tysandronicus, an earlier play where you have Aaron the Moor, who's also presumably a Muslim figure. And then you look at Marlowe's plays and Tamburlaine is full of Turks and Persians and Moors. And then all the minor dramatists that people don't read these days, but people like George Peel, uh, people like um, Johnson are all writing plays about what we would now call Muslims, Turks, Persians, Moors. So I think it's a response to the fact that all the playwrights know that suddenly England, diplomatically, politically and commercially, is working with the Islamic world. And what it creates is what I call uh, an ambivalence. People think this is quite scary because we don't understand these people. But then on the other hand, they say, this is also quite exciting, maybe interesting. So there's a lure, there's a, there's a fascination mm. with that sense of difference and exoticism and wanting to find out about it. And probably many people who are watching the plays would say, yeah, yeah, I, I've been to these places. Yeah, I've been traveling in North Africa. Oh yeah, you know, I was actually uh, working in Istanbul and I was doing some trade or I was working with somebody who was a diplomat. There were a lot of exchanges, a lot of people knew about the Eastern Mediterranean and these kind of encounters. So as always, what drama, what literature always does is it picks up on what's topical at the time and then changes it into something different, sure. But it's drawing on that topicality that we've just missed. We've just completely forgotten. Because what we tend to do is say, there is there surely can be no connection between Christianity and Islam in the 16th century. Well, that's a response to what's happened in the last 200 years. That's about a tradition of Orientalism, which says, you know, the East is a sort of despotic, you know, uh, dirty backward place and that that's the problem with the Islamic world. That's very much the ideology, the myth that's created in the late 18th and 19th century. And of course, now we have the argument about the clash of civilizations and the implicit assumption that, you know, the Christian West is superior to the Islamic Eastern world. Those stories don't work when you look at the late 16th century world. It's, they're, just, they're completely wrong. So we have to really recast our understanding of what's going on. And one way of getting into them is to say, look at what Shakespeare is doing with such an ambiguous figure as Othello. Othello is a, is a classic example of how people in the period respond to Islam. They may be scared of him, but they may also be attracted to him. They may be drawn to him as a military powerful leader, but they're also worried about where he's come from, what is his background, how may, unpredictable may he be in his responses to various situations. And that captures what I call this ambivalence in terms of a response to working with the Islamic world. For dramatists, of course, that kind of ambivalence is really exciting. That's what, you, that's what you're interested in. It makes good drama. So we shouldn't forget where it comes from. To what extent, you mentioned this sort of mixture of awe, fascination and a bit of fear. To what extent did the Judas try to understand Islam on its own terms? Uh, this is not a period where you can talk about comparative religion. You know, the, the, we, we forget how unbelievably contested this is as a sectarian conflict between particularly Protestantism and Catholicism. So there isn't a sense of people sitting down saying, let me try and understand mm. the basic principles of Islam. You know, this doesn't come until historically much, much later. However, they are dimly trying to understand and they see, as some writers do, uh, some writers who were actually imprisoned um, in, um, in the Islamic world in the late 16th century, a guy called Webb, he comes back and he says, I've been you know, on these extraordinary adventures throughout North Africa and, and the Ottoman period. I was a galley slave, I'm imprisoned in Istanbul, I escaped. And he says, there is a distinction between the Sunni and the Shia um, in the Islamic world, which is quite similar. 
to the Catholic-Protestant mm. split. So there is chatter, there is conversation and discussion about the fact that there are clearly similarities between the two theologies. So people start to think about that and talk about that and say, you know, what might we understand about how we may try and get beyond these sectarian problems and conflicts? So it's a lot of myth, it's a lot of misunderstanding, but it does start, I think, certainly towards the end of Elizabeth's period to allow people to start to think, what might we do with these kind of forms of religion? How might we try and resolve some of these terrible, terrible conflicts that we're having? Um, so you have one example, which is a, a very bizarre playwright called William Percy, and he writes a play called Mohammed in His Heaven, which we usually date to sort of 1600, And he again, he puts the prophet Muhammad on stage. So of course, in many ways, this is very blasphemous and problematic for, for, for Muslim believers. But in England at the time, he's doing it and to show the distinction between Sunni and Shia, to say, and he's somebody that we believe is probably a Catholic, but he's trying to say, can't we try and resolve these conflicts around religion? So he actually turns to Islam to try and say, here is a model, you know, they're having these problems, we're having these problems. Let's maybe think about what we're doing here. So there are moments where suddenly some possibility of comparative understanding and the the problems that religion gets you into are there as a result of these kind of exchanges with the Christian and the Islamic world. But not, it's, not a, it's not a developed understanding of comparative religion, partly because they're too scared, they're too worried. They can't accept that Islam could be a separate theology uh, that's consistent in its own belief system. They have to see it as either a distorted form of paganism or a form of apostasy. So they have to see it as a, as a warped version of Christianity or just to say they're worshipping these pagan gods because it, it's too difficult mm -hmm. for Christianity to see it as simply another theology. And we know that with the problems that Christianity has with Judaism at this period, where they, they can't but acknowledge that distinct theology. And then Islam comes along. And Islam, of course, in the 16th century, seems to be absolutely irresistible. Everybody's converting to it, you know, they're, they're ruling most of the known world, and again, the English writers say, well, what's going on here? Because actually, that's if you believe in, in a God, a God here seems to be actually supporting what Islam is all about, not Christianity. All the great humanists write about this. Erasmus says, you know, the Holy Land, as we understand it in Christianity, is in Muslim hands. Jerusalem, all that area, is under Muslim control. So... What can we do about this? We're a little divided, schismatic religion, and they seem to be quite unified. That, that Sunni Ottoman imperial power, anyway, um, and that's what Erasmus is worried about. He says, the Turks, the Turks seem absolutely irresistible. What can we do about this? And his answer is really to pray. He doesn't really have an answer. So um, again, it's this problem of our understanding. We think that the Islamic world is somewhere far away, um, not very powerful, and actually we've, we're seeing it absolutely in the wrong way. We're looking at it down the wrong end of the telescope. And what impact did the Anglo-Islamic relationship have on the day-to-day the -day Tudor, the sort of, the clothes they wore, mm. that mm. kind of thing? 
I think that by the later 16th century, where you've had the formation of the Levant Company, the Barbary Company, the Muscovy Company, um, which although, as its name suggests, is connected to Russia, it's also uh, working in Persia. The flow of goods that's coming back into London particularly is huge. And what you start to see is uh, an impact on, on various aspects of everyday life. So you get casual references in the literature of the period to domestic interiors, which are all now have Turkey carpets. They have Persian rugs. You see them in the portraits of the period. The sort of vivid colour of those interior decorations changes completely because suddenly everybody wants the Turkish rug. They want Persian carpets. They want silks. They want to be wearing silks. As early as Henry V, we have a story about Henry V dressing in, in, in Turkish mm. style in Ottoman clothing. And now when you look at those uh, Elizabethan portraits and you see all that gorgeousness, even the, the jewellery, you see Elizabethan mm. and, and portraits of Elizabeth herself covered in jewels, they're all part of that Islamic trade. You know, we, say, we say they're from the Orient. Well, they're very specifically from the joint stock company's trade, from the Levant Company or the Barbary Company or the Muscovy Company. You're also, of course, seeing it in terms of um, uh, what people are eating. So all kinds of new spices are coming in. Um, people are eating currants, massive craze for currants. Um, it's a huge thing. And sugar, of course, sugar mm. that comes from uh, Morocco. And so all those stories about Elizabeth's black teeth, well, they're partly a result of the Anglo-Islamic alliance <laughs> because they're trading sugar, interestingly, for munitions. So the English mm. are selling weapons to the Moroccans as they are to the Ottomans. And what's coming back are the spices, the sugar, particularly from Morocco, um, and then all the silks from further east, from Iran, that's coming through the Ottoman territories. So there's a whole way in which um, you know, what you wear, uh, what you eat, and even what you, what you say. So words like turban and tulip, again, come in from Arabic. Or, or from Turkish Ottoman uh, version of, of, of the language that the, t the Turks are speaking at the time, these words start to come in. So again, they suffuse the language and they suffuse, you know, what people are wearing, what they're doing, and of course, what they're thinking. You know, books that are now being written about this. What are what are the Ottomans? Where do the Turks come from? What are our relationships with Africa? So people are reading about this stuff. They're wearing new stuff. They're eating new stuff, and it just becomes again part of what we now call the fabric of English society. But we shouldn't forget that it's it's indebted, particularly to this moment, because there's no there's no moment before or really after that England has such an intense relationship with the Islamic world. You mentioned some other monarchs there. Why do you think that Henry VIII himself actually enjoyed the the style, the Ottoman style of dress? So there are various uh, reports um, that, particularly at festivities, Henry appears and he's dressed um, as an Ottoman sultan. So he's presumably wearing possibly in a turban, but he's certainly mm. wearing that Ottoman style, the, the grand sort of kaftan, lots of velvet, lots of silk. And again, that's very classically Ottoman. If you look at the dress books from the period, it's an Ottoman style. But gradually, all the painters like Holbein onwards assimilate that, the style that we now look at, and we say that it's classically Elizabethan. Well, yes, it is, but part of it has come from that Islamic world, from that from the costume, from the style, from the cut. It's all Islamic, and particularly Ottoman. So there's a sense in which you want to emulate the most powerful and expensive thing going. And that in the period is the Ottomans. And Henry gets that from the 1520s. And of course, he himself is trying to set up an alliance even before he splits with Rome with the French king. So Francois Premier, Francis I, and Henry VIII 
throughout the late 1520s and early 1530s are trying to make an alliance with Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent because they can see that if they uh, take on the Spanish Habsburgs, that's a really good power block, the French, the English and the Ottomans. And that's even before the split with Rome. So there's a logic when Elizabeth is excommunicated in 1558 that she says, OK, I'm now completely politically isolated, but this now gives me an opportunity because I'm outside the papal edict that says that I can't make commercial or diplomatic alliances with the Islamic world. And those edicts have been in place for five, six hundred years, right back to the early Lateran councils in the 12th century. So Elizabeth says, great, okay. And so that, in a way, the excommunication pushes it into ever closer connections and alliances with the Islamic world. But it's one that there is a context for. She knows that her dad's been doing it. Mm. And there has been some limited trade um, with the Islamic world from as early as the, well, I mean, the, the Moroccan trade goes back even hundreds of years, but there is some limited trade and they're reaching Persia by, by the 1560s. So it sounds like the Anglo-Islamic relationship was, was having a huge impact on Tudor life. And how how does it collapse? How does it, why does it not endure? What, what, what happens? Well, what's interesting is that when Elizabeth dies and James I comes to the throne, of course, he's the new Stuart King, he has a very different outlook to Elizabeth. And he realises that it's not sustainable to have this sort of iron curtain mentality, mm. which is that Elizabeth assumes. So he immediately says, we must make peace with Spain. So in 1604, there's a treaty, a uh, famous painting, which, which shows the treaty being signed. It's the Somerset House Peace Conference in 1604. It shows the Spanish coming to London. They sign a peace agreement um, and it completely brings England uh, in from the cold. So there's an agreement that there will be no more war, there'll be no more explicit aggression between England and Spain. James is very pleased. It means that he can um, send traders out, he can establish diplomatic alliances with the Spanish, everything changes. What that means, of course, is that he doesn't need an Islamic alliance anymore. So at a stroke, those connections just diplomatically disappear. So, of course, what's interesting is, although that happens, it, 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 it almost still allows even more trade to happen. So the English East India Company, of course, has been established in 1600. So now the Levant Company, uh, the, the trade is working in Persia, and the East India Company, of course, who are going even further east, but also working with Muslim communities in the Indian Ocean, suddenly expand very rapidly. So there's a sort of breakaway between the diplomatic and the commercial connections to the Islamic world. So with Elizabeth, they're kind of cemented together. Trade and diplomacy go hand in hand. James then says, I don't want to work with these people anymore. I'm now working with the Spanish. So there's no need for a diplomatic, military, political, political alliance with the Islamic world. But the trade, of course, just grows and burgeons. Mm. And that's what happens with the East India Company. So it's a very, very intense period from Elizabeth's accession in 1558 to uh, her death in 1603, where you get this massive flowering and then suddenly it ends. Mm. Of course, it, it, in a sense, it carries on. and There's still trade and travel with the Islamic world, but it takes on a different manifestation. And how do you think the history that followed might have been altered had that sort of diplomatic, had the relationship beyond trade endured? It's difficult to say. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to, to have watched a way in which Protestantism as a theology started to actually look very closely at the theology of Islam, particularly Sunni beliefs? Um, what may have happened? It would have been very interesting to, to, to see how that would have changed certain sectarian conflicts. Mm. 
who knows? Um, I mean, the problem is that what then happens is is this sort of tradition of Orientalism where instead a sort of Western European and English tradition investigates uh, and sort of itemizes the Islamic world in this very uh, superior way. It says we now have the ability to pick over it and say what it is and it isn't. And it creates this language which the great uh, Palestinian critic Edward Said called Orientalism. He said this is a way in which the West dominates the East. It, it sort of controls it through language and discourse and, and power, effectively. So it is interesting that it is a moment where you could have led to a greater understanding of the two theologies, and instead it sort of hardened up into an absolute distinction, which I think longer, longer term has led to some of the problems that we're currently encountering. That sort of leads me on to my next question of why it's so important that we recognise this largely overlooked chapter in history. And it would also be really interesting to know why mm. you think it has been so mm. overlooked. It's clearly very important that it, it needs to be addressed because I think when you currently have uh, a multicultural Britain with various different uh, communities, uh, beliefs, theologies within that, that multicultural world, you can't keep telling a story about Elizabethan England, which is exclusively white and Christian mm. um, and what we might call English. You know, there are various versions of Englishness currently at play. So I think it's very important to tell that story, to say to various different communities, to, to Muslim or to Sikh or Hindu English communities, to say your own heritage is part of this story. It's why we call the book This Orient Isle to play on the Shakespearean idea of, you know, of this England, this, this, this great little island called England. It is not completely insular. It is outward looking. There is a story that involves Islam. Uh, there is a story which involves obviously Hindu connections because of the way in which the English uh, are, are in India at this early point, very early with, with Elizabeth. So I think it's been overlooked because again, there's the huge shadow of, of British imperial ideology, which has always said, you know, we, we dominate and we control the Islamic world partly through in, uh, you know, the possessions, the imperial possessions, particularly in the 19th century. Why it's been overlooked, I think, is, is mainly uh, it's about the kind of research you do as a historian and from where you stand. I grew up just outside Bradford in the 1970s. Um, many of my friends were Muslims, Sikhs and Hindus. This is not a sort of idyll to say it was a wonderful time. There was casual racism, there were complete misunderstandings of one's theological belief systems. But it made me realise that that was part of the story of being English. Um, and I do know that many of my dear colleagues who work in this field probably don't necessarily have that lineage and that heritage. And because that's mine, um, I am always interested to say, what about this period is, uh, is involved with being outward looking, is about encounters and exchanges in different cultures. Um, and most of this material is there. People have, have worked on it in separate little areas, but nobody's just put it together. Mm. So, you know, all the accounts of the diplomatic correspondence, and the diplomats, the English diplomats are in uh, Istanbul, Constantinople, has all been published. It's all there. Everybody's sort of been aware of it, but nobody's connected it to a wider picture about Elizabeth's explicit uh, demand to have these kind of alliances with the Islamic world. So I hope now it's, it's a story that can just take its place within the rest of Elizabethan culture and society. It's part of the wider story, and it's one that we shouldn't forget. You mentioned that um, the Tudors weren't 
clearly weren't insular. How else do you think this maybe affects the way we now look at the Tudors? Should, should, should we reassess how we view them? Yeah, I think we should reassess um, a lot of what we think um, when we see that a lot of these histories are, as it were, hidden in plain view. We can see when we look at the portraiture, once you now go, oh yeah, look, you know, this is, is that, that's, that's Moroccan and that's Turkish and that's Iranian. It makes you see that whole world picture, it's an unfashionable term, but that notion of a whole society, which is completely different. We, we don't say, oh, well, this is just a purely English uh, outlook. It's, it's something more than that. So I think it should make us reassess what that culture looks like and start to also think in other ways about um, now Persia. I mean, I touch on it in the book, but there's a lot more, I think, that can be said about the English in Persia in the late 16th, early 17th century. That's going to change, I think, again. Also, I, I hope that it will enable historians to look, as it were, at the Islamic side of the story. So because I don't have uh, those languages, because I don't have Turkish or Arabic, um, you know, my training is very much within the Greco-Roman uh, Western tradition. So I'm saying this is the story if you're from that tradition. But let's acknowledge that there is exchange with the Islamic world. I'm really excited and hoping that what you'll start to get is scholars of the, of the Ottoman period um, in Turkey saying, we have archival material showing how the Turkish diplomats and traders respond to this, or the Moroccan traders respond and diplomats, and even uh, Persia. I mean, it's a problem in terms of what we know about the archives. I mean, this is the terrible, terrible thing about uh, sort of what's happening with heritage, with what ISIS is doing. When you're destroying monuments and you're destroying archives, you are, of course, we say we're destroying history, and that sounds you know, trite in some way. It's incredibly powerful because you erase these kind of stories. You lose them. So if we lose the archives in Iran, and we don't know what's happening in the 16th and 17th century with the encounters with Europe, then we lose the possibility of telling that story of when both cultures were at least engaging with each other. So we reproduce the same old, same old story of absolute separation, theological division, sectarian conflict. And we, of course, want to try and tell a different story because looking at the past always helps us with our present. Um, and so I hope that that's possible, that we can develop that work. And it has to be collaborative. I mean, I, I don't think... I can't go any further with the work I've mm. done. My hope is, and we started doing this in some ways, I think, to do what the sciences do, which say you have to have teams of people. You have to have mm. Ottomanists. You have to have Iranians. You have to have Moroccans. You have to have Algerians who can all work together on saying what kind of new research can we do, looking to tell these different stories. So this book is really, in a sense, only a start. That was the first part of our interview with Jerry Broughton. His book, This Orient Isle, Elizabethan England and the Islamic World, will be published on the 31st of March by Alan Lane. And Jerry has also written a piece on Islam and the Tudors for our March issue, which is out now. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on the Easter Rising, the dark side of the 16th century, sex under Henry VIII, and history's most delicious dishes, among other things. You can get hold of our March edition now in all good news agents in the UK and our many digital formats. Print editions outside the UK may take a little longer to arrive in the shops. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the second part of their interview, Emma and Jerry moved on to the subject of Venice's Jewish ghetto which was established 500 years ago in 1516. It was the subject of Jerry's BBC Radio 3 documentary, which aired on Sunday the 6th of March, and is still available on BBC iPlayer Radio. While Jewish ghettos are now inevitably associated with the events of the Holocaust, Venice's ghetto had a more complex history, as Jerry explained. So this is an an extraordinary anniversary, which is the 500th anniversary of the first ghetto in Europe, and and in effect in the world, which is uh, the Jewish ghetto in Venice, which opens in March 1516. And the programme both follows the history to understand anew what this idea of the ghetto means, particularly in in the early modern period, in the 16th and 17th centuries. But then also to go on and say, what does this mean today in terms of the the crisis around what you might call multicultural Europe with the impact of of mass migration with the Syrian refugee crisis. It's clearly asked huge questions about how Europe uh, incorporates and assimilates different communities. And of course, that lies at the heart of the creation of any ghetto. The ghetto we always think of as a a place of of poverty, of of urban deprivation, where a dominant uh, community as it were, marginalises and effectively locks up another community. So I think that the programme has a certain historical importance, but it's also, again, something that we want to talk about today. You know, is this something that's even desirable to continue talking about ghettos today? Um, so the programme really goes back and, and we've spoken to prominent members of the uh, Jewish community in Venice um, we're, of course, celebrating or certainly commemorating uh, the, the creation of the ghetto this year with all kinds of different events. And, of course, it's, it's inspired a debate within the Jewish community in Venice to say, mm-hmm. what do we want? Do we really want to uh, remember this history? How do we want to see it? And in many ways, what I've discovered from doing the programme is that people do feel that there are many very significant issues about the ghetto, in particular the cultural contributions that come out of the ghetto. So many of the people I've been talking to have been saying, yes, the ghetto is, is a physical space where people were, were locked in at night. So we actually recorded in the space where you can still see where the gates hung um, and were closed at dusk. The Jews were locked in to the area of the ghetto. It's in an area uh, in Canareggio, for any, any, anybody who knows the city, it's in the northwest of the city, a very poor working class area. The doors were shut at night. Uh, Christians would then uh, survey the Jews, make sure nobody got out at night. The doors were then opened in the morning and then they could move around. But again, their movements were very much circumscribed. So some of the people that I was talking to from the Jewish community were saying, Yes, of course, you know, this is, uh, this is extremely undesirable. But there was also uh, a sense of the safety that the ghetto 
gave to many disparate communities who, of course, were fleeing persecution in Europe at the time, who were coming into the ghetto. So particularly uh, Spanish Sephardic Jews who were fleeing persecutions after 1492 with the expulsion of the Jews would travel to Venice because they would say, this is a place where we can at least practice our culture, practice our religion in relative safety. So there's a, there's a sort of, I mean, a sort of posh way to talk about it would be dialectic, but really there's just a sort of give and take about what, what happens in the ghetto, that it allows a certain version of Jewish culture to thrive. Um, and I was talking to people about the way in which there's an incredible flowering of music. Musical culture changes completely. So the tradition of, of monophonic music within the synagogue, huge debates uh, in the early 16th century in the ghetto, whether this is a good thing or whether one can introduce polyphonic music. And this, of course, is what starts to happen. So people having debates about different musical styles, um, great flowering of literature, um, many uh, great female poets, which, of course, people have often completely disregarded generally in the Christian tradition. But in the ghetto, various Jewish writers writing sort of very innovative poetry. Uh, one example is a woman called uh, Sarah Kopia Sulam extraordinary late 16th century figure, dancer, a poet. She writes about theology. Um, she questions the way in which the sort of developing tradition of anti-Semitism takes place. So it's an incredibly rich period, particularly in the early modern period. Um, and even when the ghetto uh, ends, which is in 1797, uh, Napoleon comes in and he says, we've got to tear down the gates. You know, we believe in the, the, the the revolutionary principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity, they tear the doors down. The community sort of continues, um, but then anti-Semitism, of course, starts to work in different ways. So again, people talking to me saying, yeah, although the, the ghetto effectively ended, many of its uh, mentalities continued. And the programme just goes on to, to talk about how the, the concept then endures, and of course, in its, in its, in its most evil manifestations, what, what happens under the Nazis with uh, places like the Warsaw Ghetto. But then, of course, how it also goes across the Atlantic and goes into the Americas. And you know, we think of places like Harlem and we think about black African-American communities and the way in which uh, ghettoization has taken place in, in the 20th century. And to then say, you know, how do we think about ghettos today? How do we talk about ghettos? Especially when, ironically, Although there's such a terrible tradition in many ways about the exclusions that come from the ghettos, we slightly have a romance about places where we can go and talk to our own community, buy our own bread, um, you know, live a cultural life which is, is actually quite distinct, especially in a period of globalisation when we're being asked to all drink Coca-Cola and go to Starbucks. So I'm interested in the way in which the, the concept of ghetto now is almost being kept alive in a sort of, uh, in a different way within our heads. You know, we might talk about uh, areas of North London as being a ghetto in a very privileged way, you know, where people uh, create their own forms of exclusion. Um, so does the, does the idea of the ghetto continue, even though not necessarily in the way that we immediately respond to it? I mean, I think the problem is that we immediately think of it in terms of what happened in the Second World War and the worst atrocities of the Nazis. And again, what many people in the Jewish community in Venice said to me is that is one element of the longer history of the ghetto, particularly in Venice. So actually their point is that they don't want the Venetian ghetto to be thought of as a Second World War ghetto mm. and what happened with the Nazis. And there is a, there is a memorial uh, in the main square uh, in the ghetto 
and there's there's debate within the Jewish community about how desirable that is because Jews were deported from the Jewish ghetto and were killed in the concentration camps. But their story is that there's a much wider, richer heritage that we must acknowledge both at the same time. So it's a very complicated, contentious issue, but one that I think is very, very important when we think about what Europe is today, to think about it within those longer histories of, of a 500-year tradition of the ghetto. Going back to 1516, when the ghetto was first set up, for, for those of, of us who perhaps don't have that great understanding, what this was the first time in Europe's history that people have been officially segregated purely because of their religion. How how did that come about? What events led up to it? So uh, Jews were, were working uh, in Venice um, for, for centuries. Um, and what the Christian Venetian authorities uh, were slightly concerned about was that the, the trade that they were conducting, the money was sort of washing through Venice, but wasn't sort of staying mm. in Venice. So one of the things that they wanted to do was to try and say, let's create a resident Jewish community so that the money, as it were, stays in Venice. So again, it's, it's a purely pragmatic commercial decision. Of course, there's always the voices people saying, people who had sort of uh, serious uh, antagonistic views towards the Jews saying, well, yes, but we don't want them to be sort of embedded within our community. So the, the, what you get is, uh, is a ghetto. What's interesting is the word ghetto uh, in Italian is foundry. So the area is a very poor area um, in the northwest of the city, um, which was built on quite marshy land, which was an old foundry, disused foundry. There were no churches in that area. So the Venetian authorities said, that's the right place to therefore give the Jews effectively an island. So as you know, uh, Venice is many different islands, tiny islands. You, you can't really tell because you're always jumping over a bridge. But actually the area on which the ghetto uh, resided was effectively a small island so you can you can effectively seal it off which is what happened so it's a very very specific moment and very specific reason why the ghetto was created but as everyone told me when i was when i was out there um immediately there's a, a porousness to the ghetto so people of course officially locked in at night and then let out in the day this of course wasn't wasn't how things worked. So people would sneak out, there would be crossovers, Christians would come and work in the ghetto, obviously Jews would go and work in the rest of the uh, of the city. Great stories about how the synagogues, these extraordinary synagogues, which I was shown around, beautiful 16th century synagogues, were all designed by the Jewish communities, separate synagogues. So you have a Sephardic synagogue, which is based on the sort of Spanish community, you have a German synagogue, you have Levantine synagogue, all with slightly different traditions behind them, but all built by Christians. So you have these great uh, crossovers, I guess what you'd call syncretic cultural crossings, where you get a mix of Judaism and Christianity, and they're sort of mixing together. So there's this porousness, there's a way in which uh, the, the ghetto is a, is a sort of a city with and without walls. People are always crossing it because... It's always the case, isn't it? Whenever you build a wall between two communities, they're always going to cross at the Berlin Wall, you know, the Great Wall of China. And ghettos are the same. Um, and so the stories that I was hearing were so fascinating about the, the sense in which there's never one story about a Christian community or a Jewish community. So within the Venice ghetto, there are five, six, seven, eight Jewish communities, all speaking different languages, all with different religious uh, belief systems, different musical traditions, different uh, culinary traditions, all mixing in, 
within a city that, of course, we regard as the great melting pot city, which is Venice. And as somebody uh, wonderfully pointed out to me, uh, uh, an Italian Jewish scholar, who said, what does it mean to be Venetian? The Venetians were refugees anyway. So they were Roman refugees who ended up on this, in this area, Venice in the lagoon. So they themselves are this sort of mixed heritage of all kinds of different elements of groups. And the Jews are as well. And so in the end, it's a story not about uh, cultural excu- exclusion, but about cultural mixing and, and different cultures and communities and religions having to find some way of working together. And I think today that's, of course, a very important lesson for us to think about. You mentioned earlier that the ghetto sort of protected Jews as much as it isolated them. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about that. Well, the way of, 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 as it were, locking down the space of the ghetto, of course, was a way of excluding the Jews from uh, any encounter with the Christian world, because it doesn't really work like that. But it also creates a way in which the Jewish community acknowledges a sense in which it can live its own way of life relatively free from any outside interference. And particularly, of course, with... Um, the kinds of uh, exclusion and, and attacks on Jews that were going on. You know, again, we think of this as a more recent phenomenon, but absolutely not. You know, These, what you might call pogroms, were going on throughout the early modern period. And we know the Jews were officially expelled from Spain in 1492. Um, there were various forms of expulsions and attacks on Jews um, in Eastern Europe. And of course, in England, the Jews were officially expelled in 1290. It's only in 1656 under Cromwell that there's an official allowance for Jews to come back into into the country. So Venice is seen as something of a safe haven for many uh, diasporic Jews. Um, And there's a sense in which the city is tolerating that community and will certainly not tolerate the idea that the the community would be attacked in the sense in which it's a safe haven. So, you know, it's, it's a give and take, isn't it? I often say this, um, that you know, freedom is a difficult thing. You know, to be absolutely free, you know, one always works within rules and regulations. And there's a sense in which the ghetto gives things, but it also takes things away. But then don't we always feel like that wherever we live and in any culture which we inhabit? There are always those problems. The ghetto, I think, is more pronounced. But again, you know, the, the, the outcome and the flowering of the culture that you get, which for me is absolutely classically Renaissance. Again, we talked about this a lot, that what, what that relative uh, security allowed was a sort of flourishing of culture and, and artistic creation. I was amazed, you know, that you look at the, the synagogues in the ghetto and the Spanish synagogue is this unbelievably beautiful Renaissance building, um, which is usually dated to the 1580s. So within just a generation of Spanish Jews fleeing murder, persecution from Spain, within a generation, they're creating these unbelievable edifices, which, which bespeaks a sort of sense of confidence in that culture and what, what's possible to do. So, so yeah, it cuts both ways. And how did the ghetto then decline? So gradually, as Venice declines as a, as a commercial power in the 17th century, um, so does the ghetto, to some extent. It really comes to a, to a head in the late 18th century um, with the collapse of, of, of Venice as a republic, with the invasion of the French, 1797. Uh, the city's taken. Napoleon then uh, says that you, know, you can't have a ghetto in this city. It's, it's completely antithetical to the, the French Republican tradition. So the gates are ripped off. The ghetto is no more. 
uh, in a sense. But the Jewish community remains there. So it's remained and it endures as a place where a small but not insignificant Jewish community lives. And it, and it is a tiny community now. There's only a few hundred people. So that tradition continues. And I think the commemoration is very much about saying this is a space that we do have to honour um, to understand that longer history. Nobody believes that one should live in a ghetto anymore, but you should also remember and honour the traditions that came out of that ghetto and of that place. And you touched on this earlier. What does the ghetto mean today, do you think? It's a really good question, how we now think of the ghetto. I mean, I interviewed Howard Jacobson and he was saying, you know, the ghetto remains something that you, you can go into in your mind. Um, and I think we can we can all create a sense of, you know, I live in North Oxford, I think to some extent it's a ghetto because I'm connected to certainly a middle class people, the way in which we school our children, the way in which we have dinner parties and do certain things, which is quite exclusionary. There's a way in which if people came in from the outside, they wouldn't see that. But that is a, a conscious decision that we make to create that sense of ghetto. But I still think that, that, that there is a, a concept because it's one that we feel more comfortable with and easier to inhabit people who share our values. And it's actually harder to always go beyond that and to be more, I guess the word would be cosmopolitan, to encounter different cultures and to not impose our own values on it. You know, and I think society dies, doesn't it, if it doesn't do that. You, you do just end up shriveling in on yourself. You always have to encounter other cultures, other people, other practices to enrich your own and develop societies. So I think, as Jacobson said to me, he said, you know, nobody, you know, we don't want to inhabit ghettos anymore because the problem with a ghetto is that we project our myths and fantasies of different cultures onto the ghetto and say, what are they doing behind closed doors? Mm. And that's very much what drives a lot of the, the darker elements of Christian beliefs about the, the Jewish ghetto in Venice. So these terrible sort of stories, you know, that, um, that the Jews uh, ritually murder Christian children uh, about sort of ritual forms of castration, all complete bizarre fantasies that bespeak a problem with Christians, not with Jews. Um, and as Jacobson said, that's why we don't want to believe in ghettos anymore. But the desire to, to, to live within our own group that sort of reflect back our own beliefs is still very, very strong. And one could say in a world of globalisation where all cultural difference is being sort of flattened and levelled, we do, many of us do want to reinvest in that idea of local culture. And so I think that the concept of the ghetto, um, although it's not a term because of how it, it has been appropriated in such terrible ways, is, is a desirable one. But you can see why it's a way of living that people push others into. And then also those groups actually sort of embrace it. Well, how should we, do you think, commemorate the ghetto? It's a really difficult problem, which I think uh, the Jewish community is, is, is struggling in really interesting ways with in, in Venice. I think um, partly is honouring that tradition whilst also being aware of the terrible uh, consequences of what happened. You know, it's a bit like the, dare I say it, the, the story of what's happening with the Rhodes statue at the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, a huge conflict about if we tear down that statue, isn't that an act of forgetting of history? It seems to me 
the statue should stay because it should stay actually as a beacon of the problems of that historical moment and what Rhodes represents. Similarly, it seems to me that one should never forget what the terrible things that happened in the ghetto, but then also acknowledge and honour um, the, the wonderful things that came out of it, partly as a result of the struggle that the Jewish community underwent. Um, so I think it's a wider question about how you, how you honour and you remember history. Do we ever want to forget and erase bits of history? That is very problematic, mm-hmm. I think, at any point, because we know, again, the darker elements of, uh, of political groups that have wanted to erase history. You know, that's about Stalinism and Nazism. So I find it very, very problematic to, say, destroy that statue, tear down that ghetto. It surely is about commemorating and honouring that tradition. And again, the Jewish tradition would say... <laughs> As somebody did, in it. I mean, some of the moments were deeply, deeply moving. Many of the people telling stories of their own heritage and saying, you know, that they were or they were refugees. They were their their their, their antecedents were fleeing pogroms, were, were fleeing huge forms of persecution, and saying, here they are celebrating the ghetto, um, and talking about their horror at what's happening at the moment in Europe. And very movingly, I was actually very moved in one of the synagogues, uh, Shaul Bassi, who's one of the contributors, saying that the Jewish community had brought in uh, a Syrian family to support. And, you know, it's very, very, it is actually, it's very, very moving. And for him to say, we can't not do that from our own history as Jews, um, which was, of course, saying we are incorporating and, uh, and giving, giving sort of shelter to a Muslim family is, I found extremely moving. Um, and to say at this moment, this is, seems to me a very poignant moment to talk about how cultures uh, exclude uh, or dominate other groups and what you do with those problems about refugees of, of, of migration that are confronting us all. But one other thing that Shah Bassi did say is, you know, we have a very long tradition. The Jewish tradition is very, 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 very long. So that these even the even five hundred years of commemoration of the ghetto is in many ways only a small part of the story of the wider history uh, of, of the Jews. So it's an ongoing project. But it, you know, it is a profound question about how you how you do history and why you do history and what it's there for. And it seems to me. We're celebrating many different anniversaries this year, but Shakespeare's anniversary, Moore's Utopia, I can't think of a more important one, actually, than this question of the ghetto and and how we commemorate and honour it uh, in in the best tradition of of the people who, who both suffered and did extraordinary things as a result of being in those spaces. That was Jerry Broughton speaking to Emma Mason. His BBC Radio 3 documentary, The Venice Ghetto, is available on BBC iPlayer Radio and as a podcast in the Radio 3 documentary strand. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Easter Rising with Heather Jones, while Ben Wilson will be taking us back to Britain's mid-Victorian heyday. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, 
don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.